Hebrews Bible Study Number 7 The Second Exhortation For lay leaders and deacons to conduct after the Sunday service or during a midweek Bible study session. Hear the word of our Lord from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation, and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. This is easily one of the most confusing passages in all of Holy Scripture. It requires breaking the text down into subsections, following the logic from one section to the next, and returning back to previous sections to explain them using information gathered in the latter parts. I cannot stress this enough. It's difficult. So let's explain each section as it speaks plainly, then go back and re-explain certain parts after they have been illumined by the latter sections. 
First section, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation, and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Of first importance is establishing the context of the passage. Starting with, therefore, the author is using the previous passage to springboard onto his exhortation. The therefore in question is referring to Christ's superiority over and eclipsing of Moses. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 1 through 6 reveals, as we studied last week, that a chief implication of Christ's divinity is that he is the true lawgiver, the true leader through the Exodus, and the true originator of the holy Israel that is established by faith, not by blood. Thus the author goes forward with the understanding that the Christian church on earth is in a sort of wilderness period, just like the Israelites were after their departure from slavery in Egypt. It must be said again that the author of Hebrews is not saying Jesus is merely a second Moses, but rather that Jesus is far more than Moses could ever hope to be. But this includes his being everything and more to the believer than Moses could ever have been. It is with this understanding that he applies Psalm 95, particularly the last five verses, to his exhortation toward the church. The Holy Spirit, speaking through King David, is giving a warning to us. Israel's failures in the wilderness are the heritage of the church, and so we are warned to not emulate the mistakes of our spiritual forebears. By their constant rebellion and faithlessness towards God, they were barred from ever entering the Holy Land, with the meager exceptions being Joshua and Caleb per Numbers 14. Only some of their children could enter. Thus, the psalmist admonishes us to not harden our hearts. Second section, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 19. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. In this next section, having quoted the psalm from which the exhortation flows, the author is determined to explain to the congregation what hardening one's heart truly looks like. He instructs the audience to take care, or be on guard against, having an evil and unbelieving heart. While well, he ties together evil and unbelief, as one is not considered righteous outside faith in Christ, the notion of active guarding against this raises the question of how? What does being on guard against this look like? Primarily an exhortation between fellow believers, as he is addressing the church as a collective. 
This is to guard against sin's deceitfulness, which is the primary cause of hearts being hardened. Why deceitfulness? Because it is through the temptation and sin that one is led away from the word and the good doctrine which comes from it. Some examples we might see in our own lives would be an acceptance of fornication on account of a love interest who does not want to marry, or having no qualms with fraud or bribery on account of workplace pressure. Neither of these sins ever stopped being wrong, but the temptation to engage in them for our own pleasures can lead us to rationalizing our sin or doing away with our faithfulness altogether. But why wouldn't this be a matter of individual devotion, as the parades of monastics and religious recluses presume to believe? The 14th verse states, We have come to share in Christ. Believers are united to Christ in their baptisms, Romans chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, and Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, making them not only united to our Lord, but also, in a way, to each other. This means that no sin exists in a vacuum. Again, there is no such thing as a victimless sin or victimless crime. We exhort one another to stay faithful to Jesus and in obedience to him precisely because we are accountable to one another. And when we sin, we sin against God, all of our fellow believers, and ourselves. This means that faith is not a private affair. To harden one's heart is to lead oneself away from the acceptance of the gospel. Verses 16 through 18 exemplify the people who fell in the wilderness by disobedience and rebellion, but it is unbelief which is finally named as a motivator for this behavior. Ultimately, it was not the sins which barred the people from entering the promised land, for God is a forgiving God. It was their lack of faith in the God who brought them out of Egypt that led to their demise. Therefore, as the 11th chapter will discuss in greater detail, the matter of salvation, described here as entering God's rest, rests upon faith. Third section, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. This pericope establishes the connection between the Israelites and the church. By saying a promise of entering God's rest still stands, this means that the promise which was made to Israel in the Old Testament directly applies to the church. Thus we are instructed to fear, lest we fail in the same fashion as the Israelites in the Old Testament, that is, by a lack of faith. The second verse is a clarification. Saying, failed to reach it in the first verse, might imply earning one's rest, but this cannot be the case if it is promised. Something promised unilaterally, like the unilateral promises God made to Abraham, which served as the basis for entering the promised land in the first place, makes the apprehension of the promise a matter of receiving. Just as faith receives the sacraments, faith receives the promises of God. 
Thus, in the second verse, the author yet again points to a lack of faith, not a lack of works, as the cause of failure to enter God's rest. Conversely, as the third verse shows, faith enters God's rest. The rest which the author speaks of is connecting two concepts, namely the Sabbath and the seventh day, which he will describe more in detail in later verses. But it is important to note that here he connects faith and rest, particularly in the context of God resting on the seventh day, Genesis 2 verse 3. If someone wants to wonder why Lutherans are not of the Sabbatarian persuasion, like many among the Reformed, it is because we believe the words of Scripture here which says Christ is our Sabbath. Fourth section, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. In light of his exhortation to faith as a means of entering God's rest, it is now necessary that the author should specify some things. No longer can rest be on a single appointed day of the week, now that faith in Christ Jesus and his gospel is made plain. Instead of waiting for the seventh day, now it is today, or every day, that we must have unhardened hearts and enter God's rest. Since there is a connection to the wilderness wanderings of Israel here, then there is a distinction between the children of Israel entering the promised land and the capital R, rest, which God refers to in Psalm 95. Joshua, Moses' successor, who led the conquest of Canaan, could not have actually brought the people into the rest to which Hebrews refers. There remained a hard distinction between the Sabbath requirement in the law and the rest that the Sabbath observance foreshadows. To enter God's rest is to have faith. This relieves the believer of the harsh requirements of the law. Where previously the Sabbath was a day of refreshing from the toils encountered during the week, now it is a state of being in which the demands of the law do not apply to us. On the seventh day, God enjoyed seeing his completed work of creation. When we place our trust in Christ, we enjoy God's completed work of salvation won for us. Sabbath observance was engaging in the typology of salvation, where one day a week the Old Testament believer was able to experience something like unto the beatific rest which God promises. Here we understand that the author of Hebrews is not doing away with the third commandment, but introducing a more proper observance for the New Testament believer. Fifth section, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account." 
Obeying the third commandment is now a matter of entering into God's rest by faith. Since the disobedience in verse 11 is born out of a lack of belief, per Hebrews 3.19, you shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, might be understood in the New Testament era to mean, you shall keep the faith by hearing the word, as we would characterize Luther's explanation in the small catechism, which more succinctly says, we should fear and love God that we may not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Before Luther connected the Sabbath and the word, the author of Hebrews did so plainly. We are judged by God through his word, which will reveal the true orientation of our souls. No matter how labyrinthine the human heart may be, the word cuts through all complexity of motivation or haziness of belief, like Alexander's sword slicing open the Gordian knot. It is true that the twelfth verse demonstrates the difference between the soul and the spirit, lending credibility to the trichotomist view of man's composition, that we are made of body, spirit, and soul, but attention is better paid to the reason the author brings this up. Either one is a believer who holds to what scripture has proclaimed, or he has an evil, unbelieving heart. This is discerned by the word, which cuts through all of our nuance and excuses to reveal our true self. The word will either kill you or make you alive. Commentators have noted the sword comparison as a weapon of wounding, stating that the word harms or kills us in order to make us alive, as the author highlights the active and discerning nature of scripture. Rather than just laying flat upon a shelf, the Bible shows you what you truly are, and points you to our Savior when you are found wanting. Lest one object that the scriptures are mere ink on paper, the author reminds the reader that no one is hidden from God's sight. No one can run from God, hide from him, lie to him, nor fight him. The judge who laid waste to an entire generation of Israelites in the wilderness laid them low by the standard of what was revealed to them. So too are we judged according to what God has given to us. If we should make the same mistake that the Israelites made, then we will be accused according to the same standard, the revealed word. This is why the exhortation is to enter the rest which God has promised. All other paths lead straight to wrath. Tying the passage together. The author of Hebrews is not writing in an obtuse way as though he were intentionally confusing us with several strands of thought, but he writes briefly on a complex series of subjects which tie together in a way that bring the exhortation great power. Let's simplify and organize the message into a logical argument for our understanding. Premise 1. God rested on the seventh day from the work of creation, Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. The third commandment was intended as a weekly observance of this seventh day as a typological experience, Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. The entrance into the promised land was intended to be the same typification of the seventh day as the Sabbath, though it was not accomplished, Psalm 95, verse 11, and Hebrews 4, 4, and 4, 8. Therefore, conclusion, the seventh day persists as more than just an era in which God's work of creation is finished. It is also a state of being, heretofore referred to in Hebrews as God's rest. Premise 2. 
The generation of Israel who departed from Egypt were wiped out due to unbelief, which resulted in disobedience. Hebrews 3, verses 16 through 19. Unbelief means being barred from entering God's rest. Therefore, if unbelief bars one from entry, then belief means entering God's rest. Hebrews 4, verse 3. Premise 3. The third commandment is not abrogated. Hebrews 4, verse 9. Believers are now called to actively enter the seventh day rest rather than wait for the material seventh day of the week. Hebrews 4, verses 5 and 6. Obedience to the third commandment has changed. Previously, it was waiting for a certain day, but it is now to be observed every day. Hebrews 4, verse 7. Obedience to the third commandment does not take the form of abstinence from earthly labor anymore. It is now the apprehension of God's rest by faith. Therefore, the third commandment is now best understood to mean we should fear and love God that we may not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacredly and gladly hear from and learn it. The Christian Moral Conclusion Disobedience comes from a hardened, unbelieving heart. Hebrews 3 verses 12 and 13. If we fall from the faith by the deceitfulness of sin and having a hardened heart, then we will fall just as the Israelites in the wilderness did. Hebrews 4 verse 11. If we strive to enter God's rest by faith, then such does not happen to us. Hebrews 4 verse 3. God's word is the means by which our hearts are discerned by the Almighty. Hebrews 4 verse 12. We do not want to be judged as the faithless and thus fall. Therefore, we must exhort one another towards faith in Christ and obedience to God's word. Hebrews 3 verses 13 through 14. In this exhortation, then, the author of Hebrews invites us to exhort one another to hear God's word, rejoice in it, and continue in faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, that we may enter God's rest and be there apart from our works. Amen and amen.